Imagine a future where the office, the shops, schools and sports centres are no more than 15 minutes from your home. It might not be the future for everyone tomorrow, but as COVID-19 is changing the way people move around, it may be closer than we think. The big idea that we're seeing really pop up is this idea of the 15-minute city, this idea you can do the basic functions of daily life within a 15-minute walk or bike ride from where you live. People are travelling less and, potentially, in new ways. Has society arrived at a crossroads for green transport? I was made redundant, so I stopped commuting to London. I also had to sell my car and move to a smaller town. That pause that's been created out of COVID also gives the opportunity for bold, courageous steps to help accelerate that green energy transition. I'm installing, getting on for hundreds of EV charge posts every working day in people's homes. And what needs to happen to ensure progress doesn't stall? It's really crucial that, that government and local government act now to bring in those initiatives that will give people the confidence to move to electric vehicles uh, and other forms of transport. I'm Bryony McKenzie and you're listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. Today, when it comes to transport, are electric vehicles finally in the fast lane? Why is transport a problem when it comes to talking about the environment? The International Energy Agency calculated it accounts for around a quarter of all carbon emissions and the majority of those are from road transport, so that's cars and trucks. The drive to lower CO2 emissions was underway before COVID-19 arrived, but as lockdowns and social distancing changed people's lives and the way they get around, the question is now whether COVID-19 could accelerate this change. Sophie James used to live in a commuter town in the southeast of England. She owned a petrol car and travelled to work in London on the train. But now life looks very different. I was made redundant, so I stopped commuting to London. I also had to sell my car and move to a smaller town, which was further from London, so it was cheaper, and I have got a local job. So I travel a lot less now. Everything for me is a lot closer. I get to work um, by cycling or I get a bus. The downsides are um, when you want to go long distance, I have to be super organised. I have used a car sharing scheme before and um, a lot of those offer electric cars, which are great. I think in the future, I would think really carefully about buying a petrol car again. I'd try and cycle and use public transport more. But in the same respect, it is very useful having a car. At the moment, electric cars account for just 1% of all cars on the roads. But it's predicted 3% of all car sales in 2020 will be electric. Registration of battery electric vehicles in the UK is up 184% on 2019 and China has almost half the world's electric vehicles on its roads, partly due to government incentives and subsidies. In a moment, we're going to be hearing from a panel of experts on how integral electric vehicles could be in the future of transport. But first, we're looking at car sharing schemes, 
Hiring a car on demand through an app is now possible in most major cities and growing in popularity. We've been to South London to speak to James Taylor, the general manager of Zipcar, one such scheme. So Zipcar was launched a number of years ago in in the US and came over to London um, in in 2010. And the mission of of Zipcar has been to basically enable simple, responsible urban living from day one. So what does that mean in practice? Well, it's about taking private cars off the road and giving people access to, to vehicles on demand so they don't need to own a private car. Um, and help kind of improve our, our cities so make them kind of less, less polluted, um, less congested and kind of less, less vehicles on our roads. We've got over 3,000 vehicles in our fleet, so cars and vans. 325 of those are fully electric. Sustainability is the heart of everything that we do. It's kind of a, a real core principle of, of the business. So it's it's key to us that we we make that 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 move into electric vehicles. I mean, with car sharing, there are clear um, sustainable benefits. So we for every um, car share vehicle on the road, we take up to thirteen private vehicles off the road, and so that's been the case since we've been around. Um, so there's clearly been sustainable benefits, but obviously we want to make further in roads and moving to electric vehicles is the next step in that. We have a vision to be fully electric by 2025 um, and just this year we've already seen over 16% more members driving electric than they did compared to 2019. So we have a, a huge role to play normalising EV use um, and just m- making people comfortable with, with driving electric vehicles, charging electric vehicles and we'll continue to, to do that by adding more electric vehicles into our fleet. I think one of the things we've all experienced during lockdown is is what the future could look like with less cars on, on, on our roads. You know, I think in, in many ways it has probably accelerated that, or at least it's raised up the in the discussion around what, what we can do to kind of keep this, um, this, this, this future where we've got better air quality, less cars on our road, less, less congestion, less pollution. James Taylor from Zipcar. Car sharing schemes are just one example of change being led by people. But to truly lower CO2 emissions requires scale. Governments worldwide are creating record-breaking stimulus packages to help economies recover from COVID-19. But will any of that money go towards cleaner transport schemes? And what do they look like? To discuss that and the future of transport, I'm joined by Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Julia King, who's the Vice Chair of the UK's Committee on Climate Change, Nikos Safos, Senior Fellow for Energy at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies based in Washington, and Mel Lane, CEO of New Motion, a Shell partner company which provides electric vehicle charging solutions across Europe. Thank you all for joining me today. Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Julia King, I'll come to you first. What's needed for a green recovery in the transport sector? Uh, well, I think we need measures to uh, ensure we embed the, the changes in behaviours like working from home and like the increase we've seen in cycling and walking. But I think we also desperately need to do something to encourage people back onto public transport and, of course, also into shared car use. We need something that will make people feel confident again that, uh, that those are safe things for them to do. Because we've seen this huge rise 
um, in car use. Um, and then, of course, uh, we need to be doing things to encourage the transition to electric vehicles. So, for example, we could be getting on with investment in, in charging points and things to give people the confidence um, to make that transition to a low-carbon vehicle. What does the government need to do to make that happen in the UK? There are some good incentives in terms of people um, buying uh, uh, company cars or, indeed, or, or, lease vehicle, or taking on lease vehicles um, through schemes which allow them to do that out of salary before tax. Um, I would like to see um, a much, much bigger differential in, in, in terms of vehicle excise duty. I think some of those suggestions people have made about you know, increasing the tax on high emissions vehicles so that you can make the, um, the subsidies on ultra low emissions vehicles much larger to make them cheaper for people. All of those kinds of measures, possibly even a scrappage scheme for the really highest emitting vehicles might be a good thing to do. Nikos, Safos, I'll come to you. Some of those things that Baroness Brown mentioned, their scrappage schemes, some governments have made more progress on this. There's big global differences in transport, aren't there? There are big differences in terms of how people move around, uh, how much they rely on public transportation versus private vehicle use. Uh, But there's also a big difference in the rate of ownership of private vehicle use. So obviously in the developed economies, there's a much higher prevalence of private cars. Uh, That's not the case in the emerging economies. So I think one of the key challenges that we have is how do we make sure that countries that haven't locked in car-heavy infrastructure where everyone owns one or two cars, how do we provide reliable and affordable and sustainable transportation solutions there to avoid them having to go through the same car-heavy path that we in the West have done. Nikos, which countries are leading the way in low-carbon transport? I think some of the pioneers in this space are several European countries, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Barcelona, Paris. In North America, Vancouver is often mentioned. And they all have the same uh, ingredients. They all have made a concerted multi-year effort to try to build up alternatives to private car use. The other big idea that we're seeing really pop up is this idea of the 15-minute city, this idea that you should have, you should live in a place where you can do the basic functions of daily life within a 15-minute walk or bike ride from where you live. And that's not really a transportation question. It's an urban planning question. Mel, sustainable solutions very much in your area. Talk us through what you think needs to be done. We're very encouraged, really, by the incentives around sustainable mobility that we're seeing um, as part of that post-COVID recovery. Um, We're seeing subsidies, we're seeing tax benefits for electric vehicles, but also for smart charging infrastructure. So so all of that helps to create um, the climate for change. Certainly, in terms of what we see as the key drivers for, um, you know, increasing the adoption of electric mobility, infrastructure is indeed one of those things. So making sure that people have got access to infrastructure um, is, is, is one of the kind of the barriers uh, that stops people making that, that, that call today to move to um, an EV. They're worried about range. Um, they're worried about will they run out. They're worried about where they'll be able to charge on route. So, so that really is something that's very important for for customers at the moment. I think 
We also, though, need to really simplify access. So for people who do have um, an electric vehicle at the moment, they have to have somewhere between two and four, you know, tokens or cards to access different networks. So working together to try and open up networks, interoperability between networks, I think will really help um, as well. I just want to pick up um, on some of those um, things that you mentioned, range anxiety. Now, just for people who may not know what that is, just sort of give us a an overview of, of what that is, because that is something that comes up again and again, if you speak to anyone about electric vehicles. Yeah, I mean, 46% of the people um, we interviewed in our recent um, EV driver survey worry about the availability of charge points. That was a big survey of EV drivers across Europe. Yeah, absolutely. So the concern here, the range anxiety is, am I going to find a charge point on the road that I'm going to be able to charge at um, before my, my battery runs out? Um, And because there isn't the same uh, visibility of network uh, at the moment in the same way that there is for hydrocarbons, for petrol, for diesel, that's a factor in people's minds when they're thinking about making the switch to to EV. So when you estimate out the number of EVs that we're going to have um, in the future, by 2030, we're saying we would need about 3 million charge points um, across Europe. And, and for the UK specifically, that would mean going from around 19,000 today to around half a million by 2030. So, so it's a huge increase in the amount of infrastructure that we need to give, you know, to give customers that confidence they can drive and not worry about range. Baroness Brown, do you think that what Mel's talking about is likely to happen anytime? So we're certainly seeing um, cities and other places uh, talking about uh, getting on with installing the right kind of infrastructure. Uh, And of course, we have um, the Department for Transport have, uh, I think, will soon be telling us the outcome of their consultation and their decision on when there will be a phase out of of any any conventionally fueled vehicles. Um, And You know, there's been a suggestion maybe that might be 2035 rather than 2040, but there's a consultation, you know, whether it should be as early as as 2030. On the Committee on Climate Change, we think it should be at the latest 2032. I think Shell's also said 2030 as well. Excellent. So we are seeing gathering momentum and we are seeing industry starting to support this. We're in a period of time, not just in the UK, but in many countries where people are losing their jobs and spending money on a new vehicle, electric or otherwise, is just simply not a priority. Mel, is that a challenge to making the sector more sustainable? Some studies are saying as as early as in the next few years, the cost of the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle will really match that of a traditional you know internal combustion engine vehicle and so i think the combination of you know taking away consumers concerns about you know range the 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 price transparency all, all those kinds of things but also the the cost of the vehicles themselves as that cost of ownership starts to come down Do you think it's a huge win for the car industry if they're going to get big subsidies for the sale of expensive cars? I I don't know that it's a big win for the car industry per se. I mean, it's still, as you've said, it's a small percentage of the overall sales. Um, But what I think it does do um, is it uh, enables the right environment for um, those sales to increase. 
I'd just like to come back to that point, actually, because I think that, that, that just sort of emphasises the importance um, of how you develop policy uh, and also of using both, both the carrot and the stick, in a way, both the subsidy but also the regulatory target. You know, you will not be allowed to sell a car in this country beyond 2030 um, that runs on, on any kind of fossil fuel. That's a new car. A new car. If manufacturers know that they're going to have to make that change, you know, you can get that balance of, of being there being some support through, through um, subsidy, but, but some, just some, absolutely, you will not be able to do this. Um, and also when you develop policy of knowing how you are going to phase out subsidy, which is absolutely crucial. Could COVID make transport more sustainable? Well, I, it could, of course, go either way. So I think it's really crucial that, that government and local government act now to persuade people back onto public transport uh, and indeed to bring in those initiatives that will give people the confidence um, to, to move to electric vehicles uh, and other uh, zero carbon forms of transport. And Nikos and Mel, I'll ask you the, the same question. I think what's really shown, what this crisis has really shown is a different city, a city where people walk and, and bike a lot more, a city where people uh, eat out uh, in the streets, where uh, roads have been repurposed, from vehicles to restaurants and other uh, public functions and leisure. And I think that is something that if you live in a city and you're experiencing that, you want to hold on to that experience. You want to hold on to that because you can see that it's improved your quality of life. Mel, I'll come to you finally. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what has been said. I mean, I think that pause that's been created out of COVID also gives the opportunity for bold, courageous steps to help accelerate that green energy transition. It will be about the policies um, uh, that, that have been spoken about, um, and it will be about individual commitment. So I think it's all of those things coming together that, you know, hopefully COVID will be a catalyst uh, for change in each of those spaces. Baroness Brown of Cambridge, Nicholas Safos and Mel Lane, thank you for joining me today. Electric scooters and electric bikes are two modes of transport that are coming to the fore. Part of the innovation in low-carbon transport, sharing schemes exist in 600 cities across 50 countries, from Chile to New Zealand. And they're just starting to take off in the UK. Charlotte is a freelance hairdresser from London, and Peter is a project manager and keen cyclist from the southeast of England. They've both hired e-scooters, and while they enjoyed them, is their use limited? I probably use it kind of just popping somewhere, maybe just to quickly see a friend or just to my local shop. But I, I definitely wouldn't use it for commuting, and and I can be travelling, you know, kind of fifteen miles for clients. So uh, there's nowhere I would travel that far in it. I've used uh, e-scooters, electric scooters, a couple of times. I've used them in France and I've used them in Belgium. I really enjoyed using them, especially in Belgium. But the key thing about Belgium was the roads were all set out. It was clearly marked. There was specific lanes for cyclists and for the e-scooters. But thinking about how it would work in London, I'm really not sure because there's no designated roads or anything like that. It just doesn't feel so safe. 
It's partly the responsibility of governments to ensure the green transport movement is on track, but it needs the support of the private sector. What should energy companies be doing to make transport greener? Through partner companies such as New Motion and Green Lots, which provide EV charging and software solutions, Shell offers drivers access to over 165,000 EV charging points in over 30 countries, a figure that is growing. Roger Hunter is the Vice President for Mobility at Shell. What does Shell see the future of transport looking like? So ultimately, the future of transport has to be smarter and cleaner transportation, whether that's renewable electricity for light duty transport or whether that's hydrogen for the heavier types of transport, biofuels, liquefied natural gas and even renewable natural gas. So they're all going to play a role in the cleaner movement of transportation. What are the challenges that the sector is facing and what role is Shell playing in other private companies? Large companies like Shell provide investment, which provides continuity, uh, which helps development. Um, I think the other thing I'd say is that companies like Shell can help with the right partnerships, bringing together the right players in order to change uh, the the, uh, infrastructure and, and, and influence the ecosystem. Give us some examples. We've got a portfolio company called Greenlots that sells EV charging solutions And we've been working with Electrify America for some time now to help grow the charging network across America. And this is going to continue to grow um, in in major US cities such as Boston, Seattle, New York and and San Francisco. And Shell, through Greenlots as a subsidiary, will work with businesses and facility owners to provide so-called turnkey charging stations. And Electrify America is funding the initiative as part of a wider two billion investment in charging infrastructure across the US. So for me, that's a great example of the right players working together to change the infrastructure and influence the ecosystem. And I think lastly, companies like Shell really provide a pathway to scaling. This has got to get big. This has got to get mainstream. And we can leverage things like our existing customer base, government relations and and other city relations in order to to make that happen and uh, often integrating and building upon our existing products and services. A core element of Shell's business is petrol and diesel for traditional fuel for cars. What do you say to criticism that Shell should be doing more in providing cleaner, smarter solutions for transport? Really leveraging the, the large um, retail forecourt real estate that we, uh, that we have today and presence in the public domain. But we're going to go further than that. We're going to go into destinations. So whether you're at the supermarket, there needs to be an EV charging post. Uh, we're, we're also going to go far more into homes. So at the moment, um, I'm installing, um, getting on for hundreds of EV charge posts every day every working day in people's homes. That's what my businesses do. That's going to grow. Yeah, providing clean, renewable electricity like we do in the UK uh, in, into uh, people's homes and therefore into vehicles, electric vehicles in their homes, is a huge part of my growth agenda in the business that I look after here uh, for Shell. So the key to this is obviously the the lower carbon fuel, but as you say, in, combined with this kind of acceleration in digitalization. Yeah, smarter and cleaner. Many people will be used to ride hailing apps, that type of 
that type of technology on their phones. That's right. If you can if you can pull the the seats better on a bus such that it's utilised more, then you're removing kilometres from the system. If you can ensure that the delivery routes of parcels are optimised, you can reduce kilometres from the system. And it's this brilliant combination of reducing the kilometres by making things smarter, coupled with taking those kilometres and making them clean, uh, emission-free kilometres through adopting cleaner fuels. What innovation have you seen since COVID, particularly in the electrification sector of transport? Well, I've certainly seen an uh, an uptick in the use of electric scooters. And I've seen um, an uptick in the use of uh, on-demand electric bikes as well. These schemes seem to be used significantly more. I think European cities, probably, you know, Paris and London, where electric scooters and electric mopeds... um, you know, would have a probably a, a good uptake. Give us an idea of kind of the challenges globally. We've got to develop the rapid charging capabilities and, and the charging infrastructure um, in order to fulfil uh, the suburban and, and rural needs of, of movement of people, as well as those in, in cities. Um, I think the rapidly developing economies really are, are watching and also going to be able to adopt quicker the... Um, smarter uh, transportation choices and technologies that we see coming through. I mean, already we're seeing a growth of electric three-wheeler tuk-tuks in India. Yeah, we're seeing a growth uh, in Southeast Asia of electric mopeds used in major cities. It's fantastic. Roger Hunter, thank you very much for joining me today. COVID-19 has changed all our horizons. Living under long-term threat of the virus has changed behaviour. Many of us are staying closer to home and losing the long commute, boosting ideas such as the 15-minute city. And for those who are travelling, electric vehicles are becoming a more popular choice. What started as a sudden pause in movement could now morph into a new era of transport. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast presented by me, Bryony McKenzie, and brought to you by Shell. You can find the Energy Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google. Just hit subscribe to listen to the other episodes on all things energy related. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production. And I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not Shell or its affiliates. Thank you for listening and goodbye.